This is the bit that I'm struggling with. I wouldn't be able to, I'm not picking that up. Is anybody going to pick that up? Hi, I'm Emily Dean and this is Walking the Dog. This week I went out with comic Lee Mack. Now Lee doesn't have a dog, so we took out a rescue from Dogs Trust. It was a three-year-old collie cross called Livy, who was so lovely, I would have taken her home myself, but she had better hair than me, so it would never have worked. Lee was an absolute dream to spend the morning with, although have a shave next time, love. And I think he really bonded with Livy, except for the bit where she crouched down to do her business and he screamed and said, call the police. I hope you like it. That genuinely happened. If you do, please rate, review and subscribe. And for more rehoming info, go to dogstrust.org.uk. Right, have you got Livy? I've got Livy. Hello, Livy. That's an unusual lead, isn't it? Because... What breed is that? Schnauzer. Schnauzer, it's lovely. Oh, come on then. I should introduce the podcast. Do we start now? Is this officially started? Well, that's what you're let's meant do to it. do. Let's just start. You're meant to properly introduce right, it. Right, let's start. So, this is Walking the Dog. I'm Emily Dean and I'm with Lee Mack. And we haven't got Lee Mack's dog today because you don't have a dog. No, I don't have a dog. Does everyone else on this show have a dog? I mean, it helps, but. Sometimes... Am I the first without a dog? I think Larry Lamb and George Lamb didn't have a dog. Well, they probably because the dog would keep chasing after them, surely. <laughs> well, they're the so Lamb joke, yeah? You get it? Oh, I, oh, I thought it was because they were handsome. No, 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 because they're called no, Lamb. No, I get it, I get it. I Is like it going to be like this the whole way? We're going to have to explain it all. <laughs> we should say we borrowed a dog today yes. from the Dogs Trust, and she's called Livy, and she's a Collie Cross, I think. She is. Well, I say that because the woman who's just handed it over to me has told me this. And do you know what? I've been walking this a dog now for five minutes. And how are you finding it? Uh, three people have spoken to me already. Well, this is the it's thing. It's a magnet for chat, isn't it? It really is. Now, I wonder how... Sh- maybe we should avoid the... There's a way out here. The cattle... What do they call Cattle grid. Cattle grids. Do people stop and like to ch- chat? It's a way of communicating with... It's the way humans like to talk is through the medium of a dog. But that's an, I like that. Does that not appeal to you, then? I'm quite, I'm quite confident. I'm go, I'll go up to a stranger and sniff their bum myself. I don't need a dog to get involved. <laughs> well, here's another dog. Oh, another dog. Yeah? This, this is a, I is like to guess the breed. That's a Great Dane. That's a Cavalier. Oh, a Cavalier, sorry. King Charles. <laughs> not a Great Dane. Not a Great Dane, no. Oh, sorry. Embarrass yourself there. Embarrass myself madly. Can we say where we are, Lee? What do you mean official, are we allowed to say it? Or? Well, no, I just mean are we allowed because I don't want to give away yes. your oh, locale. We are in Bushy Park. Yeah. Which is, not, not a lot of people know about Bushy Park, even though it's massive. It's really beautiful. It's, it's very near Hampton Court Palace. Yeah. I think probably at some point was owned by Henry VIII. Everything was, wasn't it? Well, yeah. he was the king, wasn't he? And I have been known to do a bit of running in here. Oh, do you? I like to do a little bit of running. Do you run. work out? Yeah, I mean, you can probably tell by just looking at me the answer to that question, Emily. I work out, I do a bit of running, you don't need to ask. And also, Mo Farah does a bit of running in here. Really? Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, we often go running together, me and Mo. We need to chat for about three seconds and he's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Then he's off. Then he's off. So we decided, I'm really glad you agreed to do this, because I know you don't have dogs, do you? Well, no, I have had dogs, but I don't have a dog. Why don't you have a dog now? Well, shall I tell you my history with pets? Yeah, go on. So I've got three children and and a wife. Yeah. And that's enough. Okay. I basically, when I was seven, we got a dog that lived until I was 21 years old. So it lived for 14 years. And I can't remember much pre-seven. Who can? 
So you could say, up until the age of 21, I pretty much, all I remember is having this dog. And the dog died. What was the dog called? Sheba. Yeah. And then when I was about 25, me and my then girlfriend, now wife, we got a cat. And that lasted 19 and a half years. So I worked out the other day that I basically have had two pets for 33 and a half years. Two pets for 33 and a half years. I don't rush into things. I'm not. Do you think, were you upset when your dog died? I'm sad. Oh yeah, it was very sad, but he'd had a, she'd had a good day. Oh. <laughs> I was very sad, he'd had a good, I mean, she'd had a good day. No, she was, she was a husky. Uh, well, it's half husky and half something else. Oh, they're beautiful, else. I like those. And it was back in the 70s when we got her. And it t- we used to Did she stink p- of cigarette smoke? All dogs in the 70s Well, really I had no choice because smoke. my mum smoked like a trooper, but also we grew up in a pub. We grew up in a pub and so did the dog. Yeah. So the dog just turned up on the doorstep one day and uh, my dad fed it some pies that we used to sell in the pub. And then we decided to keep it and a few months later it gave birth to seven puppies. Not because of the pies. There's, there's yeah. So what happened to the puppies? One of the dog's penis was involved, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the puppies? What happened to the puppies? We gave them away and we kept one called Jason. Oh, and that's J- a strange name for a dog, it's, isn't it's, it? It's, yeah, it's very odd. Especially given that my brother was called Rover. Yeah. <laughs> Boom, old school. Anyway, so we, the, the dog, uh, we decided to keep Jason, but Jason chewed everything up. So, actually, no, there was another dog. I forgot about the other dog. Shane. Oh, really? Now, Shane's an interesting story. Yeah, go on. Shane was an Alsatian and kept attacking us, like really pecking at us and oh, really, really? Get, just nipping us. And the dog kept biting us. So my, my only memory of this was that my mum was in a telephone box. It got hit by a car, right? Oh, no. And it survived. My mum handed me over to the vet. And the vet says, yeah, we've had a look at Shane. Um, and the angels have come. I want to know if, they, if he wants to come and live with him in heaven. So I... Okay, thanks, thanks, you know, thanks for letting me know, sort of thing. I was quite an advanced seven-year-old. <laughs> and uh, turns out many years later, that wasn't a vet. That was her mate, right? <laughs> and she had decided enough is enough. First of all, he's biting my kids, and now he's been hit by a car. Let's give him away. But she didn't want to tell me that, so she pretended he was dead. So she just gave him away. So we never got that dog back. Then we got Sheba. Yeah. Sheba was until I was about 21. Now, this is a Jack Russell approaching us, I think. Yeah, that's the nippy dogs, aren't they, the Jack Russell? So what do you make of Livy? I really like Livy. We should I say, because like with yes. the Dogs Trust, she's being... She, I believe she's with the Dogs Trust because her last family were allergic to her. Right. The allergies. OK, um, you, I noticed you didn't check that with me before we came out. <laughs> As it happens, I haven't got any allergies, but I just said that's a bit remiss of you, Emily. I'm trying to get... You see, we are auditioning for dogs. Are you? We're do you think you'll get one? I do think the kids, so. Because you've got three kids, as we said. Do you, do the, the kids, kids really want one. Do they? Yeah, and it would be nice to have a dog. My wife really wants a dog because the cats aren't giving enough love. I pointed this out to Matt Lucas on the dog podcast that yeah. they're selfish bastards, cats. That's the problem. Yeah, but I just... Everyone says that, but that, that, that's, that doesn't come into it to me. I don't... Really? I don't buy a dog because of its selfless. You know, I don't want... It's interesting that we've got a dog that looks like Lassie today because this you it want really a dog that's going to rescue like you from a well. <laughs> I want just something that we can stroke, regardless of its selfish are, attitude. The highlights are great. That's not highlights. Surely that's natural. <laughs> no, it looks like highlights. <laughs> hey, look at this, Lee. What's going oh, on? Oh, yeah, we've been approached by one of these crazy bicycles where will you do it with your arms, not your legs. It's unusual. <laughs> Hello. Hi. <laughs> but anyway, I'm. Uh, she's growing. I really like her. She's got a nice disposition. fully grown? Um, I'm going to ask the Dogs Trust lady, is Livy fully grown? She's fully grown. So she's a cross between uh, what I call a lassie dog. Yeah. And what? 
So she's quite small. She's you, oh, she's a collie crop. I mean, if she ran for help, it would take take a while. But when I <laughs> when I asked if You'd you wanted to do this, you starved to death down that well by the time she gets back. <laughs> you said I want a mongrel. Yeah. And I said to you, I don't know if you can really say that anymore. They call them crossbreeds now. No, a crossbreed is surely when you you cross a pedigree dog with a pedigree dog. Mixed breed. A mongrel is just lots of different. Can we say mongrel? Why don't we say mongrel anymore? No one does. Yeah. Times have changed, Lee. Even dogs have a form of political correctness, do they? <laughs> okay, it's not a mongrel then, it's a crossbreed. <laughs> so I was going to say, when I first encountered you, yeah. we would, you were standing in for Frank for his radio show. This was probably about 10 years ago, maybe. But I can remember the producer at the time came, well, she's still the producer, but she kind of lost her shizzle a bit. And she said, look, just focus, you two. <laughs> And you came into the studio, you picked up a non-working phone and started pressing buttons and having a sort of imaginary conversation. You started swivelling around on the chair. I am. Um, you pretended to type. I mean, it was lunacy. Well, I, I have been... Uh, we've had this conversation before, haven't we? I have been diagnosed unofficially with ADHD. Yeah. I say unofficially because it was for, for a book I was doing, so it wasn't sort of a proper session, as it were. It was more of a right. sort of overview of my, my general attitude. And does that feel does that feel accurate to you? Do you think you well have now that ADHD? I've read a bit about it and yeah, I, all the all the symptoms she described of ADHD, I thought yeah, I've got that, that mate, I'll have that. But then you're quite a focused person, aren't you? Because you have to produce, you know, you're a grafter as well. Well, you raise a good point, Emily, because I said that to her. Yeah. I said I'm not. I, I I work really hard. I focus. Some would say too much when I'm doing my sitcom. To yeah. which she said, ah, classic ADHD. You're all over the place or you're hyper focused. And at this point, I'm thinking, yeah. If I, if I said I like eating tangerines, you go, ah, yeah, classic, classic ADHD, that. You know, whatever I say, you just say this. But to be fair to her, that is, having done a little bit more reading now about the subject, it is true, you're hyper-focused or all over the shop. Because I think I've got it a little bit. I think you might be the first person to say, of course you've got it. And Oh, you've definitely got it. Someone, I definitely have. Definitely. Because when I'm mid-anecdote, you seem to drift off like it's not interesting. It's got to be a condition. It's got to be, right? That cannot be my anecdote. Someone surely. once described it as having too many tabs open on my browser. Yeah. So what happens is I'm just on one tab and I just have to open the other one and then. Do you have too many tabs open on your browser? Yeah. So I, I what, can't. What you're at my literal browser. I'm a bit old school. I can't open more than one tab on a Commodore 64. <laughs> but but the, the I the but the but the principle is I struggle with I can't go to a supermarket without feeling nauseous. So if I look at all that information on a shelf. Yeah. I prefer the good old days when there was just, well, they felt like there was less options yes, for things I know, like washing I agree powder. With you. Now it's like... Is that part of the condition oh, then? Just too much information, too much to take in. I feel like I can't choose something and still have looked at them all. <laughs> and that's a lot of information to take in, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm talking everything. So if I want to go and buy some oranges, I'll say, well, I can't look at the, I can't look at the oranges. I have to sit all the conditioners. <laughs> so I'll be there all day, looking at every aisle and every bit of information, <laughs> taking it all in. I'm not, I don't walk out until I've memorised every barcode. <laughs> Talking to which, you know, my mum worked at QuickSave. You don't know that, of course you don't, but she did. My mum, when she worked at QuickSave... This is before the pub, was it? This was uh, after the pub. Yeah. She worked in a supermarket, and they didn't have the beep, beep thing. You yeah. just had to remember the price of everything. It wasn't even priced on the food. You had to just know. That's extraordinary. She spent weeks, like it was a degree. She had to spend weeks and weeks training for minimum wage. It was unbelievable. But then don't you think there probably has been a... 
I think that people have lost retention. Mm. Well, you wouldn't be able to do that now. People wouldn't. No. She'd be on some programme or something well, now. You don't have to concentrate on anything, anybody. Yeah. You know, you set your sat-nav and then you start daydreaming until you get there. I mean, I do concentrate on the roads, but what I'm saying is you don't, you're not, you don't know anymore where you are. You just press a button, I get know. in your car, and when you get out, you're in Burnley, aren't you? Well, Frank Skinner has a rule, which is the no Google thing, which is that if you know it, you're not allowed to Google it. So if you're trying to remember someone's name, for example, someone famous and you know it, you can't. Go you can only Google it if it's a fresh piece of information. If you can't remember a person's name, how are you Googling it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know you could say the lead singer oh, in that band or oh, whatever. Oh, I see. Right. Do you know what I mean? I thought you were just going to type in Google, name everyone that's ever lived, and just start going through it. <gasps> oh, my oh. God. Oh, my God, yes, let's move away. Oh, my God. Yeah, they do attack at this time of year. Oh, that, my we've God. We've just come across loads of deer. Can we just explain what happened? Yeah, they're, they're camouflage. Lee, this is extraordinary. The producer just pointed... Basically, we're walking along, and how many deer would you say there are, Lee? I would say at least 40 or 50 there. There's about 50 deer. Everything's okay. Are they, are they okay, these guys? I mean... Yeah, they're lying down. They haven't just, they're not sinking, if that's what you're worried about. No, I'm more... I'm, it's not muddy. <laughs> no, but what they do is they, they, they suddenly jump out of you, don't they? It's like we don't have another Benton situation. You've seen that video. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> Yes, okay, let's, that was extraordinary. I wasn't expecting... You seem very calm about it, Lee. Well, they call me the deer man. So, um... That's just me fee. <laughs> <laughs> the stags attack people. Do they? Yeah, occasionally. So you have to keep away from... You don't want to get... You see all these idiots, like, going up to them, trying to stroke them and do selfies and things. And then oh, I just took a picture. <laughs> no, but actually going up to them and putting their yeah. children on their backs and things. No, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. So tell me, so you grew up in... Southport. Correct. And your parents, they didn't own a pub always. They wouldn't no. own a pub when you were born, did they? That was something they did no. when you were kind of like... So when we were about... They worked in, in bars and things and then decided to get their own pub. Yeah. I say their own pub. We didn't own it, but they were the managers. And we went to Rochdale. To this is you and your brother, yeah. Me and my brother and my mum and dad. And we worked in a pub called the Dog and Partridge. I say we, my mum and dad ran it. Yeah. Uh, we didn't do anything. Actually, I tell you, we did do something. I, we bottled up for 50p a, every Saturday morning. We had to put all the bottles in the right crates to give back to the brewery. I used to get paid 50 pence for three hours' work. I know, pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> Even in the 70s. <laughs> and then uh, I used to go and spend it all immediately on yeah. 10 packets of football cards. That was a lot of bubble gum. There was a bubble gum in every car. I used to come back, I could hardly speak. My mouth, I think that's why my mum let me do it. I was spending about four hours trying to chew it. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so we grew up in Rochdale in the Dog and Partridge. Yeah. The dog connection there. Lovely. Yeah. I really appreciate that, I'm trying to keep it dog, dog associated. You've really done your prep. You're known yeah. for that, and I appreciate it. Yeah, I knew this was coming up, so uh, I asked my mum and dad oh, look, to get... there's a, two pugs. That is a... I think they found that's a French poodle. No, those two are... That. That's a French poodle, isn't it? No, French boxer. What's that? Boston Terrier. Boston, Boston Terrier, that's what I meant. What did you say, Nurley? I said, I said French poodle. You said Boston Terrier. <laughs> wrong country, wrong dog. <laughs> Well, thanks. And is that a pug? Oh. Oh, that's French bulldog. We're doing terribly oh, here. Oh, French bulldog. What's a French poodle then? That's just a poodle, isn't it? She's a cross. And yeah. she's a cross. She's a griffin. She's wow. Oh, is that Brussels griffin? Yes. Yeah, my friend's got that. Beautiful. Wow. Well, I've I've had this dog for 20 minutes. <laughs> I've just taken it out for the day. Oh. Yeah. She's called Livy and she's from the Dogs Trust. Oh, she's like a rescue dog. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were sort of auditioning her. To, <laughs> to see if she bakes the grade, you? but he's Randy. <laughs> oh, hi, nice to meet you. Bethel. Bethel, back there. Bethel. 
It's an absolute chat magnet, this oh, dog thing. It really is. But do you not like that it's aspect of it? I, I like this part with the solitude. So right. I, I come running in here and people say, oh, you, what you should do, because this is the birthplace, this park of the yeah. park run. You know the famous park run? The 5K oh, yeah. park run? Yeah. It's all over the country now. And it's, it started here in Bushy Park. And everyone says, why don't you do the Bushy Park run? And I go, because that's the whole point of running, is that you're on your own, right? Well, so you like, like solitude then? Well, I don't. I don't crave it like some sort of uh, sociopath. <laughs> I just, I just like the idea of certain things off a of solitude. So dog walking to me, I would associate with solitude right. and not about chatting. Right. You got to remember that I do like that's my job, chatting, isn't it? But do you find if you're at home with your wife and kids, do you sometimes think, oh, okay, I just need to be on my own for like an hour? Like that's quite a male oh, thing yeah. traditionally, isn't it? That man cave bit, thing. A little bit. I've got a little bit of that going on, but not not much. I'm all right with, you know, being around my wife and children. No, but strangers. even people you love, sometimes it's just that yeah, thing, own space thing. So tell me about the pub because I'm interested. Yeah. So they. So, so you... I grew up in a pub from about the age of seven. Yeah. To about I don't know, let's say nine or ten, and then we were in Rochdale. Then my dad and mum got a new pub, brand new pub that's been built in Blackburn called the Centurion. And was this when you were sort of, you know, the king of your group in a way, because you could invite people back yeah. there? Yeah, well, this is the thing. We lived on it. It was a, you know, it's a pretty bleak council estate back in the 70s and 80s, you know. And, and But we were lucky enough to live... You see, when it comes in handy, I'll play the I grew up on a council estate card. But the reality is we grew up in a pub on a council estate. It's not quite the same thing, because we were quite wealthy. <laughs> depends what, depends who I'm talking to and what I'm after. <laughs> but I get this sense of your family being, like, real bon vivers and turn the music up and keep the party going. Oh yeah, yeah, they were, they were party animals. I mean, they were, and it, this is in the days that pubs used to close in the afternoon by the, you know, the law of the land says you had to close your pub at three o'clock and yeah. not open it till six. And so people like my mum and dad used to do what is famously known as the lock-in. Yeah. So you were allowed to keep your, because you weren't, it wasn't illegal to have people around for drinks, you just couldn't sell it to them. Yeah. I think they did sell it to them. <laughs> <laughs> but, they used to just shut the doors and all the windows, get it all dark in there, and then just carry on drinking all afternoon. It was a big, boozy culture that I grew up in, you know. And do you drink now? I've not had a drink now for 10 months. That's great. And how yeah. do you feel? Sober. Why was that? Well, I did a play at the beginning of the year for six months. Oh, yes, I remember. And yeah. when you've got my, or should I say our type of, yeah. so like the ADHD it? brain, repetition, I think, is part of it. So... I get into repetitive cycles about things. So if you, if I, for example, came home because every night on, in a play you're saying the same words every mm, night, mm. you get the same train to work. Mm. Everything is re repeated to the point where you're passing people in the corridor at exactly the same time in a play because they're on the way onto the stage as you're coming off it. And I, if I'd have gone home at the end of a day like that and had a glass of wine, that would have been part of the repetition. So the next night I'd have had a glass. Of, I'd have just had a glass of wine every night after the show, or maybe half a bottle. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Even maybe a bottle. <laughs> but the re it would have been repeated, a repeated cycle. So because I didn't drink for the first few days, that got repeated every night. Does that make right. sense? No, that really does. It's the best time to stop drinking is when you're doing yeah. something repetitive, because then you, yeah. re you actually repetitively drink. So the it's just the opposite, you repetitively don't drink. So I did about five, six months of not drinking, and then I thought, I don't miss it at all, so I'm sticking at it. That's great, though. Mm. Did you drink when you were younger? Like, were you put off because your parents owned a pub? And uh, did you see them drink and think... Yeah, I mean, I'm not suggesting they were alcoholics, but they ran... They, they, oh, they definitely, they were drinkers, you know. They were... The whole culture of what I grew up in with growing up in a pub, on a council estate particularly, because it's 
It's like a close-knit community. Everybody knows everyone. It was just one big house of chaos, of constant... It was a bit of a rough pub as well. I look back, and I didn't think of it at the time, but I look back, and my dad was constantly you know, like, trying to split up fights and get chuck people out of the pub, and, you know, it was just... It was chaos. But, you know, quite quite sort of funny chaos in a weird way. But I was going to say, did you ever feel sort of vulnerable or like, I don't feel safe here? Oh, no, or? no, 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 I always felt safe. It was, uh, you, you, you just get used to your own, whatever your upbringing is, you, you think of it as the norm. It's only now I'm a parent, I look back and think, I don't think I'd want my kids growing up in a pub. But, but they, that probably says more about modern parenting than it does about them. Does that make sense? Do you think so? Yeah, what, I you think, mean you're more neurotic as a modern yeah, parent? Yeah, we're definitely all... In a lot of ways, for good reasons, you know. We now decide it's not a good idea if a seven-year-old smokes. <laughs> Them kind of things. Well, Whereas... Mike, I, I used to say, I had my first example of just me then, when I was about ten. And I was saying, oh, what about when your grandmother leaves your cigarettes in the doll's house so your parents don't find them? And everyone was like, no. <laughs> that, was my, that was my first just me then. Um, Alcohol has been a massive part of my life. But also, I, you know, I've, I've never drank heavily heavily like you know I've heard Frank Skinner talking about his drinking I've read his books and he was a different level <laughs> yeah. I am not waking up in the morning and taking sherry from under the bed well you're also not waking up on a central reservation no exactly you know so it wasn't I'm not that kind of drinker but I have very I suppose mixed feelings about it I mean I've recently probably about a year ago become uh, ambassador for alcohol concern oh really I had to speak in the Houses of Parliament. It was terrifying. Did you? Yeah, it was really terrifying. I didn't, I thought I was totally out of my depth because I thought, I don't really know perhaps what I'm talking about. I, the, the, the attitude we have in this country towards drinking is very similar to the attitude we had towards smoking yeah. in the 70s and 80s. We, we thought nothing of being able to use cigarette advertising on sporting events like motor racing or snooker, you know, it used to be the Embassy World Championships and yeah. all this kind of stuff. And then until someone said, yeah, that's probably not a good idea, is it? And the idea of not being able to smoke in pubs. At the time, there was a real mixed feeling. I mean, I was a non-smoker, but I remember thinking, what about civil liberties? What about, why can't you smoke in a pub? Now, I think we all agree, it was just nothing but a good idea, don't we? Yeah, we all go. absolutely. And we, and, and Even you, smokers think that, I think. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, I've not really talked about this with anyone, so you could say it's a world exclusive, haven't I? <laughs> You know, if you want to really hype up this whole thing to make it more profound than it actually is. I refused to do my last series of my sitcom because it ended up on Dave, UK TV, you know, mm. constantly sponsored by alcohol brands. So I, I just refused to write any more. Really? I said, I'm not going to do any more until we have an agreement that says it won't be on anymore. I'm not spending 10 months a year yeah. helping to just fuel the alcohol industry. Yeah. And so after a battle that seemed to go on for a long, long time. I was even going to change the name of it at one point. Really? So I thought, we had an existing agreement, you see. We can't not. Yeah. It's a long, boring story, but the, the upshot is, if I make them, we're sort of legally obliged to sell it to them. So I just said, well, OK, then I won't, I'm just not making any more, full stop. And so what happened then? I, they, we won. <laughs> they relented eventually. That's so brilliant, now, though. Did you feel great about I that? I felt great, yeah, because yeah. I've never really been involved in yeah. a sort of... Uh, a big making a big stance like this yeah. about like campaigning campaigning yeah i've never really I've, i didn't i held out i just thought yeah perhaps if i hold out so right, well, well, i was sort of willing to give it up because i just thought i love doing the show but i'm not i can't bear to spend 10 months a year watching yeah. it yeah. Uh, sorry i can't spend <laughs> definitely can't spend 10 months a year watching it <laughs> well, how do you think it is for us <laughs> i can't uh, to spend 10 months a year working on it 
to watch to watch it being like an advert for booze. Can I take says, that out? That quote, I can't bear to spend <laughs> 10 months with Lee Mack on not going well, out. I can't spend 10 months here watching um, it. So then what was interesting is you, well, I say interesting, slash slightly traumatic, is that you went on holiday with your parents because you obviously had these yes. quite posh holidays. You really have read the book, haven't you? Yeah, I love that so book. So you're the one. Did, I thought did it you was read brilliant. it for this? No, I've read it anyway. Wow, I'm impressed. Big I'm fan of yours, Lee. Oh, thanks. But I can remember something... About them going on holiday. About yeah. you going on holiday, and then your dad basically never came back. I know. So you, a... all, you and your brother and your mum went to... Was it in Spain or something? It was Spain, yeah. It was, believe it or not, back in the 80s. <laughs> we went to Pontins as kids on holiday, and... Uh, they decided that they wanted to push this brand because it was it was big. Holiday camps were big in this country. Yeah. And they decided that they wanted to push Pontins further afield and make it a holiday. You could go to abroad, but still go to Pontins. So you know what you're getting. You know what they called it? Pontinental. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how brilliant is that? Pontinental. <laughs> Can you imagine the person in the meeting? I've come up with it, Dave. It's I've one got of those class. Name. It's one of those classic ones, isn't it? Where you come up with a name first. And go, we've got to do something with this. It's a bit like I had a sitcom idea once called Wife's Too Short. And I've no idea what it's about, but it's sort of that that's enough I to could, go. That would have been I've, a nice part for me. That's perfect for you, isn't it? <laughs> Wife's too short. <laughs> so you went on this holiday to Pontinental in Pontinental, Spain. Pontinental, yeah. And then everything so, was fine. Everything was fine for the first two weeks. And then on the last day they had a big row and my dad went off. A bit drunk somewhere, like down to the bar or something. And then the next morning we woke up and time to get on the plane and come back home and my dad wasn't there my mum said oh go and look by the pool he'd be asleep on one of the sunbeds or something but he hadn't he just decided he couldn't cope with going back and running a pub and he just went off never came back off the holiday now obviously we've seen him since no longer with us but he came back a few weeks later but he just basically cracked under the pressure and I mean it and what was the pressure though Lee? what was the pressure of he uh, you know his own uh married life that perhaps things weren't obviously going well and then on top of that it's not it's not easy running a pub it's quite hard work you know it's not it's literally my idea of hell having grown up in a pub it's long hours it's hard work it's boozy i mean it's a very intense life running a pub and, and what did he say when he came back did he say i'm sorry and or did you not discuss it he's always a joker i think he probably said something like well you lot got back quick <laughs> No, I don't so that's know. where you get it from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he, uh, obviously, an odd way to end a marriage, but had he come back on the on the right day, mm. I think they wouldn't have lasted much longer anyway. It was only yeah. it was just the, the the spark that lit the fire. And then, you, and so then, you and your brother, your brother went to live with your dad, and you went to live with your mum. Uh, Is that right? Correct. Right? Yes. Yeah. Why was that? You just thought it made sense because you wanted to stay in. Uh, my, my brother was more settled at his school. Yeah, uh, he was doing very well, much brighter than me. He was sort of, he was established there. I had uh, only just started secondary school, so it was not a big shift for me to move. My mum wanted to go back to her hometown, so it was just natural for me to go back. It yeah. was natural for, for him to go back as well, but he just decided he wanted to carry on his schooling there, and so he decided to live there, yeah. I mean, again, things that you, you, you think of now, look back, they just go, Pretty, pretty mad, right? And then um, I have to talk to you about Pontins. Yes. Because I love this period in your life. So then I go and work at Pontins. You'd think I'd have had enough of Pontins by now, you, wouldn't you? We should say at this point that prior to Pontins, yeah. oh, was this prior to Pontins, I think? Lee also did the strangest job in the world, didn't you? Which a lot of Stable people... boy at Red, Red Rum? Yeah. Yes, I was, I was a stable boy 
So the first job, I basically came, so I, I do my O-levels. I fail them all, because at this point I've started messing about thinking, it'd be great to be a comedian, I'll start doing it now. <laughs> so all I was interested in was larking around at school, messing about, failed everything. I leave school at 15, virtually no qualifications, and I'm, I'm at home. I literally walked into the door, thought, right, now what, I've just been thrown out of college, yeah. what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I put the television on, horse racing was on, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll do that then. <laughs> because I know I just had a sort of vague interest, but not enough to want to do it as a job. But I went, oh, what am I going to do in my life? Telly on. And I'll do that. I mean, if, it could, if Babe Station had been on, I'd have ended up doing that. You'd be sitting here now going, I'm waiting for your call. <laughs> so I, as luck would have it, my hometown uh, had probably, in fact, definitely the world's most famous racehorse, well, certainly in this country, which was Red Rum. And he was still alive at this point. He'd retired, but he was still... Still, you well, know. also Lee, that was the that was peak celebrity time for the horse because yeah, horses was... were sort of red carpet celebrities in the seventies and eighties. Without a doubt, yeah. Well, this was mid, this was the mid eighties. Yeah. So uh, I I rang them up, and now I used to be very skinny. Yeah. And quite small, but not 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 small enough and skinny enough to say the following lie, which was I rang him up and said, "Can I learn to be a jockey at your stables?" To which Ginger McCain's wife Beryl. Who was the? Uh... It's a big birdly. Oh, you met her. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, you mean the heron that's just flown past? Sorry, she's actually very skinny and small. But anyway, yeah. so I rang up and said I want to be a jockey, but I've never ridden a horse in my life. Yeah. She said, uh, "Well, how heavy are you?" And I said, seven and a half stone." Now, I was very skinny and very light as a fifteen, uh, yeah. whatever I was, then sixteen. However, I was not seven and a half stone. <laughs> but I was probably only about nine stone or something like that. Yeah. And I turned up, she took one look at me and went, you're not seven and a half stone, are you? <laughs> went, well, maybe not. And I worked there for a year. And what was business. Red Rum like? Was he nice? Oh, lovely fella, yeah. Still stays Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> he was brilliant. He really was. <laughs> I know nothing about horses. I spent a year with him and I'm still none the wiser. Do you ride now? No. Last time I rode was with Frank in Bulgaria. Oh, yeah, Frank he, did that show he didn't Frank like Skinner, it. Yeah. He wasn't happy about that. No. He wanted to be a cowboy and then he went out and decided he didn't want to be one. Well, I think he wanted to be a cowboy until he had to ride. Yeah. Red Run was famously stabled at a horse with no gallops. He just It was at the back right. of a second hand car lot and he ended up being trained on the beach. And they say that the reason why he became, one of the reasons he became good was he always had a sore foot and that's why he wasn't great to begin with. Then they trained him on the beach and the salt, sea salt, water did him some magical good or something on his foot. Oh really? And that's part of the reason he suddenly became this amazing but part, If horse. you can hear noises by the way, that's a, a children's adventure playground. Oh I thought you were going to say, if you can hear noises by the way, that's Lee trying to tell an anecdote about a horse but he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> he's panicking mid-anecdote. And, and then it's a sea salted, salted sea salt with his salty horse foot. Lee's telling one, one of his one show <laughs> anecdotes and then, about the horse. The Red Rum said to me, he said... <laughs> this is when Lee has to work clean. He talks about Red <laughs> Panic. <laughs> Come on, Livy, this way. Am I doing this right? I hope I'm... Lee tight and tight, I like to I know. Oh, sorry. He no, likes to keep it tight. Right. What do you think that's about? What, keeping the lead tight? Well, I've got control. a theory on that. Are you a control freak? Yeah, I think I am. Yeah. How does that manifest itself? Well, I like to be in control. <laughs> but in your everyday life? Yeah, just like I, I drive everywhere. I'll tell you how it manifests itself. Yeah. I did a 129-day tour, and the tour manager sat in the back and I drove. And that's quite unusual. 
because I thought, what well, I don't want him driving my car. And do you know what? People mocked me for my control freakery. Yeah. There was one one moment where I thought, I've got to let go of this. Mm. And I swear this is true. I was at a hotel in Newcastle. The, the, the tour manager says, well, I'll go and get the car from the car park. Because the rule was he drove the car when I wasn't in it. But when I was in it, I drove the car, which was 99% of the time I, I we travelled together. And then he got the car from the set, the basement of the hotel for me and he brought it to the front and because we had to drive one mile to the theatre yeah and it was pouring with rain I said I'll oh, just stay in the car and I jumped in the passenger seat it's the only time he drove me he crashed the car <laughs> we did something like 20,000 miles on that tour he drove it once with me in the passenger seat and the car crashed <laughs> now am I a control freak or am I just correct that's the way to look at it. Do you think possibly... That he, was making him nervous? <laughs> yeah. That might be part He'd of it. He'd entered a, 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 a to be performance fair to him, anxiety. Well, it wasn't his fault, actually, because a car hit us from behind and he shunted the car in front. Yeah. So it was just, could say bad luck, but I do remember when we stopped at the traffic lights, me thinking, you're a tad close to that car in front. <laughs> and when it was shunted from behind, I was proved correct when we smashed into the one in front. Now, is that a control freak? Probably. I think you are, but I, I don't necessarily think it's a negative thing. Because I know when you work on not going out, you have to. You're the sort of showrunner, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. But you control every aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm I'm 50 next year, and I've worked. I've have I have this you new look philosophy. Greatly. Oh, bit of a delay there. We can edit that tighter. And, uh, <laughs> I'm 50 next year, and I. The, the, I should have burst into a round of applause like <laughs> on a chat show. <laughs> just put on loads of little, I'll do little voices now, you can edit in later. He said he's 50, no way. Honestly, did that fella just pass? 50. He over 34. And I spent my life thinking, you know, if you're a control freak, you've got to let go of that. Yeah. And you've got to put all your energies into learning to not be a control freak. Now I'm 50, complete opposite. I now realise I'm not going to change, so I spent, put all my energies in being in control. <laughs> Right. All the energy. So if I, instead of reading a book like How to Not Be a Control Freak, I'd read a book called How to Control Everything. I think it's called Mind Camp. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? How's that working out for you? Oh, it's great. It's much more relaxing. Because you just accept yourself. You just go, just, that's what I'm like. So. It's really relaxing for the people around you as well. I know, but the good thing is I don't care. Because I'm reading another book called How to Not Care What People Think About You or Anything. How to Be Selfish by Paul McKenna. It's a hypnotic thing. But yeah, so you learn to you learn to just <laughs> go with it. So now, so like I can spend all my energies reading books about like I don't like fly. You're not in control when you're flying, so I don't fly. Do you never fly? I haven't done for a while. You're like Dennis Bergkamp. Yeah, exactly. Or without the skill. And I, I just think, well, why, why, you can spend you can spend months going for psychotherapy and reading books, or spend months driving long distances. <laughs> it's then, easier to drive than it is to learn not to to be scared of flying. But then, do you also believe that? like amazing experiences lie outside of your comfort zone as well. So like think of all the places in the world that you'll never get to see because you won't fly. But think of all the places, amazing places that you don't get to see because you do fly. I bet you don't go to places in Britain as much as I do. I bet you don't go to northern France as much as I do. So you're missing out just as much as me because you're not going, you're looking too far over the horizon, not enough in your own back garden. Well, I suppose that's an interesting way of looking at it. Is, listen, yeah. if I said to you, discover every part of this park, every, every mm. square inch of it, yeah. spend the rest of your life in this park. Lee? That's me. Okay, so I need to talk to you about when you were I'm at I'm just Ponte. trying to add a bit of... <laughs> I know, because Remember Lee the theme of the, the dogs just looking up going... 
I'm, I'm not getting a look in, am I? Do you know, a remarkable number of dogs don't bark, I've discovered doing this podcast. Russell Howard's got a barker. What's he got? Big barker. So, yeah, you were at Pontins. Pontins. And I get the feeling that that's when... Well, that was your first experience of proper stand-up in a way, wasn't it? Well, it, yeah, I always sort of count my first proper gig as... Uh, 1995 in Surbiton. That was going to a proper comedy club, and I was the in the Gong Show bit. Yeah. For the, for people that hadn't done it before, you know. But the actual first proper attempt, I suppose, is, is 1988. What happened was I was the I was the sort of blue coat that didn't entertain. Yeah. Everyone else had had a skill, singers and dancers, and I was just the bloke who spoke to people and did a few sports things in the daytime and stuff. The non-performer, as it were. Yeah. And I thought, I wouldn't mind having a go at this, because I'd, I'd had one eye at that point, thinking it'd be great to be a comedian, but not really at Pontins. I didn't really watch the comedians thinking, that's is what I want to do. I was more into, you know, alternative comedy. had started to boom at that point, and I was massively into Ben Elton. And, you know, I thought these other comics were great, but it wasn't what I wanted to... To be honest with you, it was such a dream yeah. to want to be a comic. It felt like saying I want to be an astronaut. It's, it's all good saying it, but it felt a million miles from ever being able to do it. Especially, but don't do you... forget, in the 80s, you know, there was no... The sort of what we called alternative comedy was based very much in London. It was a very yeah. Oxbridge thing, you know. It was very... Uh, there was working men's clubs up north, and there was the sort of alternative boom in, in London. And so that wasn't an option to do that. But do you think that gives you, oddly, a kind of fearlessness in a way, that you don't think, oh, well, I can't do that because I'm not good enough, because it just seems so ludicrous that that would happen to you, that you... Would give it a go? Yeah. Well, I, well what happened was the, 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 the host of the night, the entertainment manager, he was coming to the end of his... He sort of had enough of being an entertainment manager, I think. Yeah. And every week he'd get up in front of quite a rowdy crowd. It was the adult bar. And he, he just had had enough of it, of that sort of boozy, boozy environment. And the show was a little bit... They called it the Naughty But Nice Show, so... The dancers in the main ballroom on a Friday night for the families would do a dance routine, but in the Naughty But Nice show, they'd do the can-can. So yes. it was pretty tame. And you, you dated one of the dancers. I did date one of the dancers. Which is my favourite fact about you. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy who was the, comed- uh, was the magician, yeah. the, the kid's magician, did an adult show. But when I say adult, we're talking like putting a hanky over his hand, and when he pulls a hanky away, he's sticking two fingers up at the audience as a joke. It's that kind of level. It's not that strong. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, so I went on stage and I, I was drunk because I was nervous because he said, can you, can you replace me and, and bring... All you've got to do is introduce him, walk on and say, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the can-can. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Don't do anything other than that. <laughs> but I'd had a few to drink and I thought, well, go on, I'll try that. So I did uh, summer season. And then I like after you leave Pontins because that's when you meet your other half. But then you met Tara when you were students. So then I go, I decide that I'm, I want to be a comedian and I don't know how to do that. Because as I say, there's no comedy clubs near where I'm living at the time. So what I do is I go and tra- think if I travel the world, yeah. I'll be all... Oh, no, I'll tell you what I do. I, I end up living in London. I see a show at the comedy store with people I didn't who know, know who they were at the time. Maybe having a sniff. It yeah. was Steve Coogan and Eddie Izzard and all on the same bill. Wow. thought it was like a magical night. thought, right, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I want to be a comedian. But I still didn't have the guts to do it, so instead I went... And uh, now the dog's doing a poo. Let's stop the anecdote. That's okay, because you know now? what? Well, I'll tell you what happens. What happens we get now? Out the, the dog's doing a poo. Bags, and then Has nice... anyone got the number for the police or anything? <laughs> I don't know how to cope with This is the bit that I'm struggling with. I wouldn't be able to... I'm not picking that up. Is anybody going to pick that up? Yeah. I can pick it up. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can just see leaves. Where about? That's oh, it. There it is. Show. So, oh, my God. This is the bit I don't get. 
being a dog owner. How is does the, it work? Is the poo thing... Is, yeah, the plastic bag over your hand is fine. But you, it's the texture, right? Really? Look, if I bought you dog poo for a present, <laughs> and I said, guess what's in there, and you were feeling it, and I said, it's dog poo, <laughs> you wouldn't go, oh, that doesn't matter, man's touching paper. You'd go, that's disgusting, because you'd be feeling it with your fingers. Yeah, but you used to have to pick up red rum's poo. Let me tell you a story about red rum poo. My boss said to me, on my first day working at the stables, pick up that poo in the, in the stable, right? So I walked off, yeah. he says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to get a shovel. He said, no, 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 you'll be here all day. You're a stable boy. You can get, that, get rid of that idea. What you do is when a horse poos, you get your hands underneath it, you hold on to a bit of hay and straw underneath, and you just throw it straight in the, in the, in the skip yeah. with all the, all the, all the muck and fertiliser and stuff. So I scooped it up with my hands and threw it in. Now, later on in the day, that same day, the yard dog called Tramp, yeah. is a, he was a mangy old dog. He did a poo in the middle of the yard. And the boss said, Lee, pick that up. Now, I had a problem here because I thought, right, is this a test, isn't it? He's already, he's already tested me in the morning. I told him to pick it up with my hands. So I thought I had to make a judgment call. Yeah. I had everyone looking at me, that's how it felt anyway. I bent down and I picked it up with my hands. And you he went, wanna... what are you doing? And I went, picking it up. He went, not with your hands. But you said, yeah, but that's different. Horses are clean, dogs are disgusting. And I'll, I've never forgotten those words. But then you, you would change your children's nappies. Well, right? definitely not. I mean, 13. <laughs> Trust me, if you weren't a nappy at 13, you really want them changing themselves. Oh, no, I changed nappies, but that's different altogether. Should I tell you the difference? Yeah. Humans. What do you mean? They're human beings. Yeah. Part of my DNA. Okay. I couldn't pick up your baby's poo. Really? Just yours. <laughs> just me specifically. Just yours. Because it would be like Damien. I just, I don't know, I can't help thinking you're the kind of woman whose baby poo would smell of Chardonnay and Rusk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Strangest compliment I've ever had. <laughs> so I want to talk about Tara, because I yes. really like your wife. Not in a creepy way, yeah. but I just get very good vibes off her. And she's just something so gentle, but funny. and. Yeah, she is. I don't know, she kind of had me at hello when I met her. And do you think... That I'm batting above my average. Is that what you mean? <laughs> no. But do you think that that's been really helpful? Having her all that time so that you met her, you know, you know everything about her was completely pure in terms of her feelings for you. You mean pre-comedy? Yeah. Without pre fame and money is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was... Uh... You were like broke students, weren't you? Oh, yeah. We, we met. So I, I was, at this point, gone back to... Decided to, if I went back to university, I might be able to become a stand-up comedian. I didn't quite know how that was going to happen, but I thought at least I'll be mixing in the right circles to be a stand-up comedian. Yeah. I, I'd be more likely to say to someone I'd like to be a comedian in a university than I would working at the Biscuit Factory. Yeah. I'd feel more comfortable saying it because it was an arty-type course. And yeah. Tara was doing English and history, and I did film and television. It was actually called drama, film and television, but I always conveniently miss out the word drama and just say film and television. Come slightly. Well, slightly drama's all, a bit. There's more... a connotation with drama that I don't feel comfortable with. I understand that because it was film sounds a bit sort of New York. New York, exactly. It sounds like I, I live in a, a sort of loft warehouse conversion. Exposed brick, maybe. Yeah, and I want to do some uh, stuff about uh, everything's in black Richard and white. Richard glasses. That's right. The whole look. Drama well, says no. leggings and desperation, doesn't it? <laughs> That's my autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> what it is, if you're a stand-up comedian that did drama, there's a sense that you learnt to become a stand-up comedian from doing drama, when actually it was a theoretical degree. It was, it, there was very little practice. And actually, 
I turned up realising very quickly this was not going to teach me to be a stand-up comedian, yeah. so I just set up a comedy club at the college. So actually, it did help me a lot, but not for the drama reasons. Yeah. And if anyone has seen my sitcom, <laughs> you'll know that the drama didn't massively have much effect on me. Well, you say that, but I think my theory about stand-ups and comics is that they find it very easy to act because it's so much easier than stand-up. And I sort yeah, of think... I think that's true, actually. You know, that, that's the hardest of all those disciplines in terms of performing, I personally think, is stand-up. It's nothing harder. So I think to just go on and say lines that someone else has written for you is easy compared to that. Yes, to a degree. I think it's... It's all about the writing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not so dismissing actors, but the I... The upshot is writing a series of a sitcom. Oh, hello. Oh, that's a nice dog. Writing a series of a sitcom. You bloodshot eyes. What? He had very bloodshot eyes. He, the he, dog? I don't think he's given up the drinking. The man or the dog? The dog. So, tell me about Tara. Um, so, Tara, we met at... Yeah, we met at college. And did you really fancy her when you first saw her? Well, you know, I think... Yes. So Lancastrian, doesn't like yeah. talking about it. Do you know what? I, I, I'd like to pretend I remember the immediate emotion. We were friends for a while, so it was, it was. Yeah, obviously I fancied her because I wouldn't have ended up. I don't believe that anyone do, who ends up with somebody doesn't fancy them from the beginning. Yeah. But it was more. We shared a flat first. Put it that way, as flatmates. Right. There was three bedrooms: the small bedroom, the middle bedroom, and the big bedroom. This sounds like the start of a Goldilocks story, right? Well, Goldilocks XXX <laughs> on the Adult Channel. So. Uh, and there was me, Tara, and a girl called Becky. And we drew, we couldn't afford, none of us could afford to pay more for the big room. It was a much bigger room, so, but none of us could afford to pay more for it. Oh, I'm losing the romance. Right, so what we decided was, <laughs> what we decided was to draw straws about who had the rooms, right? Listen, there's a point of this. We drew straws for who had the rooms. Now, I drew the little room, Tara drew the middle room, Becky drew the big room. Becky's there for 24 hours and she has to go away for two weeks, for whatever reason, holiday or something. Now me and Tara are in there. Wait, should we start heading back, by the way? Is it, let me know if I'm boring you. And then Tara... And then Tara... <laughs> this is, you don't get this on parking, here. Mid, mid anecdote. <laughs> Richard Burton in the middle of his anecdote. That's when I... Me and Elizabeth... Right, right, should we get going back? Yeah, go on. So, no, I'm just aware that you've There's a point, there's a point. There's a relevant point this. to this. Yeah. So I've got the little room. Tara's got the middle room. Becky's got the big room. Becky goes away. Meanwhile, me and Tara get together and are now a couple. Lovely. And You made your move one night. Yeah. And then she left me to tell Becky. That's quite a hard thing to tell someone, right? To well, tell she's someone. suddenly living with a couple. Tell me about it. In fact, I'm wheel. telling you. And then... <laughs> and then... <laughs> and then... Becky comes back and I have to tell her. Tara goes out. Very kind of her. Um, <laughs> And I, this is how I said it to her. I said, uh, look, you know that I'm in the little room and Tara's got the middle room and you've got the big room. She yeah. went, yeah. I said, well, um, I'm in the middle room. She went, oh, Tara swapped with you. And I went, no, we're both in the middle room. She went, you're going to share the middle room? And then I did the sign, you know, with the finger and the fist. Oh, you didn't. And she went, oh, I get it. That's how we ended up together. It wasn't an economical decision. <laughs> but yeah, we ended up and together. And you've been together for how long now? We've now been together for somewhere between a year and 30 years. I'm not sure. But it's somewhere between <laughs> those two. No, we've been together for... Do you know what? I worked out it's the other day. It's about 20 years. Well, here's the, th here's the thing. I'm 50 next year. You look great. Oh, thanks, you, mate. Hey, you look really good. Cheers. And I, there will be a point next year, at some point, where I will have been with Tara 
longer in my life than not being with her because it'll be over 25 years. Do you see what I mean? That's really nice though. And I will find out the date. I'm the kind of person that will actually put a, an hour on it. So I'll work out to the hour, because I remember the first time we kissed and roughly what time it when was. When was the first time you kissed? Uh, the first time we kissed, he said, I can remember. When was it? <laughs> uh, it was 27th of December. All pissed no, up after Christmas. Of course. 27th of December, 1993. Aww. And we used to do that thing that you do in the first flushes of romance. We used to celebrate every 27th, every month. Yeah. Now we barely look at each other on our anniversary. <laughs> Happy anniversary, aren't you? We have a firm shake of the hand there. Are you quite romantic? Very romantic. Are you? Tell. Do I look romantic? I, I've got to be honest, I can't imagine... Can't you, imagine me being I, romantic? Well, I just can't imagine you you sort of doing the red roses and the heart-shaped chocolate box. I think you'd show what, your love... What is this, 1984? <laughs> 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 oh, he's cute. Oh. oh, my God, it's happening again. Oh, Livy's doing a poo. Oh, no, it's not. She's sniffing she something. She just did a wee or something. Yeah, so anyway, so Tara. So Tara, yeah, no, I, I think I'm romantic. Are I, you? I like to think so. I mean, we all like to think we're romantic, don't we? Would I be romantic in another person's eyes? I don't know. I mean, we have our romantic sessions, <laughs> as we call them. Bank holiday Mondays and Easter Sunday. <laughs> you make them sound so romantic, calling them <laughs> sessions. Look, romance is a little bit like, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of public statements of love for other people. I've always found them a bit odd. Really? I think it's like a what thing. sort of thing? Well, the idea that, you know, even wedding speeches, when a man gets up and says, that proclaims how much he loves this woman, that's a lovely thought, but you don't need to tell us, you just need to tell her, right? I don't get why we have to share. It's like when you see people, I mean, you, you know, no one likes to see people having sex in a car park, do they? Well, that's <laughs> why you are. Right, I say nobody. <laughs> But the there's majority don't. There's a market for that kind the of stuff. The idea of public proclamations of love and affection. Yeah. That it's between you and the person you love, isn't it? That you don't need to tell the third party unless it's. So do you find presumably things like when people post things on Facebook or Twitter or me and my bay with hearts? Oh Is well, I mean I don't do into? social media, but if I did, that would send me insane. Yeah, just to go. Yeah, I mean, why? Why are you telling me? I have no relationship with you. Why am I being told about your love for that person when I don't have any feelings towards you as a person? No, if I, if I see a man get up at a wedding and say how much he loves his wife yeah. and how much he desires his wife and how much he, what he means to her, I think, save it for later on, mate. Do you? Yeah, I just think I don't... I don't I, I, I'm, you're telling the wrong person. Does that make sense? It does, but I think why... The... I'll put it this way. If they got up and said the opposite, now that would be a gripping speech, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be interesting. It's a given that you love her. You're telling us something we already know. We're at your wedding. <laughs> but if they got up and said, I think she might be pregnant and I was forced into this, then I'd go, now we've got a speech on our ass. <laughs> because this is not what I was expecting. Or I've ended up with her because I was kind of too scared yeah, yeah. to leave her. She, you know, she's, she's beautiful looking, the best looking woman I've ever been with. Has she got a personality to match? Well, you can't have everything. You know, if you said something like that, then I would be going, come on, this is a speech. <laughs> but just to just list how wonderful another human being is to, to somebody else. Why do you think people feel the need to do because that? Because I think it might be that they struggle to say it on an intimate level. Right. I think they say, they, they, this is, pretty much if the wife's crying and looking emotional, it suggests it's the first time she's heard this. And I would be worried as the father to go, well, you've not told her this. Why are you doing it through us? I'm not your agent. Just go straight to the woman and tell her. 
So when a man proclaims his love for a woman in a public situation, I want to see that woman going, raising her eyebrows as if to say, heard it. Because if she doesn't, it means he's not saying it enough. <laughs> and that is what I said for my wedding speech. <laughs> I don't find that hard to believe. <laughs> you, you're not on social media, are you? And I'm not, why no. is that? To be honest with you, I just there's a guy called Pete who works in my local chippy, he tells me everything. <laughs> I get it all from him. <laughs> so if I go on tour, I tell Pete and he tells a few people. But no, seriously, why? what about it doesn't appeal to you? Said, Do you know what? I found it really interesting, that question. How quickly we've gone from why are you on Twitter yes, to why yeah, are you right. not on Twitter? I, the, the default position should be that we're not on it. You should, I should be asking you why you're on it. Yeah. How did that change so quickly? Why am I not? I, I haven't considered why I'm not on Twitter in the same way. I haven't considered why I haven't learnt to juggle. <laughs> Bad example, I have learned to But you probably juggle. have considered it, because I would imagine... I have, actually. That's a really bad example. <laughs> <laughs> I have learned to juggle. <laughs> the only thing I've picked is the one thing I've learned to do. I get the sense that you don't really need affirmation from others in the way that I think perhaps some performers do. The idea that you, you, people will pretend they're doing it yeah. because they are... It's a good way to communicate. For example, I'm going on tour and I want people to know I'm going on tour. Yeah. That's, that's a more palatable way they can tell themselves it's good to be on Twitter, to get a message out to people about what they're doing. But that's not the reality. The reality is they want people to tell them how great they are. That's it. Do you that's think that's the, true? That's the predominant reason why most people go on social media. In the same way is that you could say, well, that's the reason you're going on stage, right? You're yes. going for affirmation. You yeah, want people so to tell you how great you, you are. Well, what I say is, yeah, but but... That, so therefore, I've got that covered. And actually, personally, I'm more into the writing. So I, I like—I actually am a bit of a reluctant performer. I prefer really? the writing of a joke. Once I know the joke works, I get very little out of it. So the first night they laugh at this new joke, I think that's brilliant. And maybe even the second night, because it proves it wasn't a fluke the first night. By the fourth night, I want to cut my own tongue out rather than say it again. Because I, I know it works. So I'm not particularly bothered about saying it again. It's also that strange thing with stand-ups, isn't there, where you're all buying into the artifice to a degree, which is I'm pretending that I'm standing here and I've just had this thought, yeah. and you're pretending, even though you sort of know that I've this is the 15th night that I've right. done that in the last month. So Well, it's interesting you said earlier that you say the hardest thing in the world is to do stand-up, and I'm not convinced about that. Well, you, to be fair, you didn't say the hardest thing in the world. You didn't include <laughs> brain surgery, did you? You said the hardest thing. In, I think the in... hardest type of performing is stand-up comedy. Yeah. That probably says more about the other types of performing than it does stand-up comedy, about how easy it is to make a living out of doing this. But it, put it one way, I, I mean, panel games get a lot of criticism. And sort of rightly so. There's too many of them. I, I get that. I know, because I'm on all of them. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, I know more people that can do stand-up that can do panel games. I mean, people criticise the small pool of people that are on panel games. Again, it's probably a fair point. There's not, there's, there's a lot of people. Well, let's just face it. The main problem is most panel games are generic. Yes. And, it, and it's not. Although it's interesting. With would I lie to you? Which obviously you're the. Are you team captain? Are we allowed to I call think you I'm that? Team captain, but, yeah. but would I lie to you? Is that one of those panel games that sort of you? You'd be hard-pressed to meet anyone who doesn't like that show because it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's quite modern because it's. It's got good energy, it's quite warm, and it doesn't have that sense of everyone pitted against each other. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think what, it massively helps that we're playing a, ga a game. I mean, yes. you've got to remember that there are very few panel games where you can actually play along at home. 
you're, you're actually watching people perform comedy, aren't you? Yeah. You know, even something as great as Have I Got News For You is, it's not a real quiz, you know, you're not at home trying to get the answers right because it isn't a question and answers thing. It's a, it's a start of a topic of conversation to be funny about. Yeah. And it's brilliant, it's absolutely brilliant. But what I lie to you is that the old school type of panel game where you can actually play along and say whether you think it's truth or a lie at home. Mm. And so to some degree you are engaged in the game, which of course was all panel games back in the day, wasn't it? It was give us a clue and call my bluff and yeah. all these shows. The point, point is that you play along at home. Yeah. And I think if you went back to those days and said, predominantly what would be on television were games that you can't play along with at home, they'd probably find that very hard to pitch because they'd say, well, what's the point then if you can't play along at home? Yeah. It's just replaced stand-up in a way as a form of getting jokes across, isn't it? So that's why personally I like would allow to you because it is a game. It's a it's not replacing stand up on TV. It's just so that's kind of returning in. to slightly like an older style idea of a panel show, which is kind of warm and and then I think not going out has that as well in a way. Well, yeah, it's got I suppose because it's in a studio as well. It feels uh, traditional, which is what everyone tells me. You know, it's an old fashioned traditional sitcom, which yeah, but then is often used as a negative. So, but well, I don't know, Lee, because I think. You know, I know how hard you work on that show because you're always going on about it. And, <laughs> but I know you really put so much energy and time and thought into writing those gags because you have that idea that it's got to deliver and it's sort of got to be a gags per minute thing. And it, it really does, though, because I think it's one of the funniest shows on telly because you just, you know, oh, you realise how lazy a lot of sort of sitcoms are. But, um, well, congratulations, because it's now... Isn't it one of the longest... It's the longest-running sitcom, or nearly? I genuinely thought you were saying, congratulations, it's the longest walk I've ever had with a dog. <laughs> um, hey, I've got a question for you. Yeah. You might not like it, because I don't think, know if you like talking about feelings very much. <laughs> but uh, I probably won't like it, no, because... Uh, but I, it's about crying. Do you cry, Lee? I, I, I've been known to cry, yeah. When did you last cry? Uh, I, don't, I genuinely can't remember the last time I cried. I'm not saying I haven't cried recently. I just, if you ask me when was the last time I laughed, I'd struggle with that answer as well, especially today. But do you? So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, no, I remember the crying one. <laughs> when you've got three kids, it's extremely hard not to get weepy about every news item that's on because you have an affinity. I definitely think you have an affinity with, you know, much more when you've got your own children. You feel something guttural about it. Where you just, yeah. Whenever you see anybody... On a news item in dire straits, you automatically imagine your child being that child, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. That's not to say that before I had children, I didn't have any empathy for yeah. humanity, but I've definitely had more since children. Are you, are you, do you get, are you like a mood swings person, or are you quite sort of stable? Because I think you strike me as quite as stable as comics go. I think I agree with that. <laughs> I think I, I've now, as the years have gone on, and the more comics I've got to know. You see, when I started out in comedy, one of my big things was I wanted to be like these people on stage before I was a comedian. Because I assumed that to be a comedian, you wouldn't be able to stand on that stage unless you were the most grounded, sorted, well-adjusted human being on the planet. Because otherwise, how could you have the confidence to stand there if you had any insecurities or doubts? or yeah. you almost like you, you had a secret about this, the meaning of life to yeah. be able to stand up there and do this. Had I known what comedians were like then, I would have got up on stage straight away instead of waiting five, six years to then do it because they're all bonkers. I mean, they're all absolutely full of insecurity, more than your average person who's not a comedian. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's, there is definitely a, a massive amount of neurotic sort of 
I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I think I am, in answer to your question, fairly not swingy with my moods. Yeah. My wife would disagree, probably. But um, Do you have a bad temper? I don't think so. I, I mean, we all say that, don't we? No, I've got a bad temper. Have you? I've yeah. never seen it. No, I'm quite... I'm relatively sunny-natured, but you wouldn't want to cross me, Lee. Wouldn't I? <laughs> what, you mean, like, with what? <laughs> There's a quote which I find interesting. Is it this way? That's yeah. not a good quote. No, hang on. That's just There's a direction. A... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Have you got that above your mantelpiece? Embroidered from your nan. As my old nan used to say, is it this way? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite profound in some It is way. quite profound. Oh, look. She said as she was trying to get out of the toilet. Lee, there's some horses. Oh, look at that. They might sense that you're a fellow horse person. Yeah, so what I was going to say yes. to you, my interesting observation, which wasn't, is it this way, yeah. was that I can't remember who said it. They're always misattributed, these quotes, on yeah. Instagram. And then Marilyn Monroe said everything. Yeah. But people say, it was F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he said, that's a sign of good parenting, is that the child has no desire to be famous. Well, that's, What do you think of that? Yeah, probably some truth in it. I had a, I suppose I had a bit of a chaotic upbringing. But I, see, I believe that I haven't got the desire to be famous. Of course, I would say that because it feels a lot more grounded to say that than go, think about me as I'm desperate to be famous. You know? <laughs> no one would have, it's, not, it's never black and white though, is it? It doesn't have to be one or the other. But it is, I do feel that, I mean, I was out with a good comedian mate of mine, Stuart Francis. He thinks there are two types of comedians, those that need to perform and those that want to perform. And I'm definitely, I, th I wish, put it one way, I wish there was a third bracket, because I think I'm in the, if I have to perform, I will bracket. Right. But, well, certainly with stand-up, that's why I only go out on the road for every four or five years. I don't have this, I've heard people saying this, you know, being a stand-up comedian on stage is better than having sex. Mm. And I think, or maybe I'm just looking at I'm having really good sex, because I don't, I, and it's similar, actually, it's only about once every four years, but it is for 129 consecutive nights when we do it. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I don't have that absolute, what I have that burning desire to do is think of jokes, write them down mm. and, and, and see if they work. Right. Like test myself. And when I find out they do, I'm happy. It's like, oh, it worked. That challenge of writing, it's quite hard writing a joke. So to write one that works is a good feeling that you achieve something. I can only describe it as I'm the kind of person that the challenge of climbing Everest would be just can I climb it, not actually reaching the top. So I'm the kind of person with 10 metres to go would happily go, should we go back down? They go, yeah. but you've not reached the top yet. Surely you want to reach the top. Oh, no, no, no. I just wanted to know I can. And it's only 10 metres away, so I know I can, so let's go. <laughs> that would really annoy the rest of the group, though, right? <laughs> it strikes me that you're not interested in fame for fame's sake. I can never imagine you pitching up on some reality show or... Well, I did... Um, I, what I tend to do now is, you're right, I wouldn't appear on... No, what show, but what I would, what I have started Britain's to do... Britain's worst drivers. No, no. But I, what I would do now, which I never used to do, is the rules have changed. I now will definitely go on programmes because it would mean the world to my kids, yeah. even if I know it's a really bad idea to go on it. Because, you know, the idea of them enjoying me being on the telly, they don't watch not going out. They're not, yeah. they, want, they want to see me. Robot Wars, yeah. that's what they want to see me on. Or the voice of an animated character, which I... I might be doing, which will make their really? day. Yeah. I might be being the voice of a dog. You're going to be a dog? I might be. You're going to have to get a dog now, Lee. I know. Has, how do you feel, by the way, spending some time with Livy? Like, I think it's... Well, partly the reason I got a dog was because I'm an orphan like you. Right. 
And Keep it light. <laughs> we should point out that you mean my parents aren't alive anymore as opposed to I don't remember my parents and I was in an orphanage. That's what you mean. No, but when but when I lost and I lost my sister and I was gonna say something to you actually. Yeah, let's keep which, it light. And I will keep it light, <laughs> but I need to say this to you, Lee. Yes. I think it was a year after my sister died and I was at the comedy awards. Yeah. And I remember you were the, uh, you came over to me and it just felt a bit surreal and a bit weird the whole evening. Yeah. And I remember I got I got this kind of I didn't really know you that well. And it was the first thing you said to me. You just said, it's terrible. And everyone was too embarrassed to mention it. Right. And I remember you weren't, and you just came over and you just said yeah, it. Yeah, well, it seems And I really touched real... me. I talked about that a lot to people. I said, I can't believe in this, let's be honest, very fake environment, mm. you know, showbiz thing. And I felt slightly overwhelmed by how weird I felt there. And it felt very unreal and a bit strange. And you just came over and you just won an award, I think. You were Tara. And you didn't, I just said, oh, and you just went, Oh my God, that's awful what happened to your sister. I'm so sorry. And I was so, like, welling up at how lovely that was oh, that you did that. That's nice to know. I, I have to be honest and say that if I hadn't won the award, I probably wouldn't have. I'd have just ignored you and gone out. But I won, luckily, so we both won, in a way. <laughs> it was really nice. And my brother died, and I, I had a similar thing where people... It's an interesting one because, I mean, the, people meant well. They, there wasn't any harm ever, but he died during the recording of Would I Lie to You? Mm -hmm. And I went to work and... I think someone had, had meant, said this in a good way, but it's a bit like Chinese whispers. Someone had said in a, in a nice way, we might not want to talk to Tilly too much about it. And that had been interpreted by someone incorrectly as we're not allowed to mention it at all. Yeah. And the problem with that is that then people don't know what to say because they can't say, hey, how are you? Because they know, you know when you know someone who's really ill yeah. and you struggle with that first line because you can't say, hey, how are you? Because you know the answer to that. The answer is not well. And it's such a natural thing to say, hey, how are you? Or how are you doing? Or how are you? That if you take that away from the conversation, it's very hard to start to say the first thing, isn't it? You just go, hello. And you just stare at them, don't you? So I got a lot of that, hello. And then just staring at me. All right. Yep. You can't say anything because you go, well, if I can't mention the big news, what else yeah. is left? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? And I think people struggle. Try saying to someone, right, by the way, his head's fallen off. Yeah. He's going to be holding it under his arm but you're not allowed to mention it. Yeah. Not wearing your hat today. Oh, God! <laughs> but we don't really have any dialogue around grief or anything, so people don't know what to say. They don't want to say the wrong thing. No, it's... And I have... It goes back to that thing of public exclamations of love yeah. and things. It, what it... There's a, certainly in the world we live in, showbiz. Yeah. No one wants to bur burst the happy bubble. And that is why anybody says anything remotely controversial in a meeting or anything you're seen as really hard work or difficult when actually it says more about the world we live in which is plastered in fake happiness you know a constant smile all the time like hey how are you great love the show uh, let's talk about this show that we're doing together that joke you see, yeah it's really interesting really like it just yeah. wondered if we could just snip it out <laughs> possibly because everyone's tense about being nice and as soon as you go no, no, that's a great joke. We're keeping it in. He's difficult. Because you're punctuating the fake varnish of, yes. of happiness that is there all the time. You know, no one's... I mean, you, you know, we've been to some showbiz parties together. Yeah. You know, in any normal party, I'm allowed to pee in the plant pot. <laughs> right? And yet, at the parties we go to, no, no, everything's sheened with a veneer <laughs> of perfection, isn't it? I was going to say, you have actually got a really good reputation, Lee. Oh, have I? Good. Yeah, well, I don't know, think I've do ever you, heard anything, anyone say he's difficult or he's... Funny. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but some people have a reputation for being hard Without to work Without a doubt. With. Yeah, no, there's, there's, a, there's a... Sometimes it's true that people are difficult, but it is also true 
that we live in a world that has permanent... I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. There's, there's somebody I know who works in... in, in this is the right way, isn't it? I keep feeling we're going back the Yeah, yeah, way. we're going the right here. Okay. There's someone I know in, in the world of TV who works behind the camera. Right. Always laughing and smiling and mm. happy. And someone cracks a joke, they laugh a lot. Right? Yeah. And I said to this comedian, does it bother you that every time you crack a joke, that person yeah. laughs like it's the funniest thing they've ever heard? Yeah. I went, no. I said, do you not, do you not find it a bit false? Like, they're not, they're not really, really it's, they're, they're sort of pretending they think you're funny. <laughs> to which this person said, oh, I know it's fake. Really? But I'm happy. I'm happy with that fakeness. I don't mind that they're, that they're, they're putting an effort on. As long as they're laughing, it doesn't matter that it's fake. In the same way as that when you go to LA and the, and the service is unbelievably good because they've got a false smile on, they say, how are you today? You know, and it's all very nice and big white teeth smiling back at you. If you said to an American, as I'm telling my anecdote, you're waving at a dog. <laughs> Yeah, but he, the, this is what happens when you have a dog, Lee. You know, There's I've got a reputation for being not difficult to work with. If you said to an American, you know your waitresses that are smiling, go, hello, sir, how are you today? You know they're false. Mm. An American would say to you, I don't care. The whole point, as long as they're smiling and doing the service, mm. I don't care how false they are. In fact, I like them to be false and happy and smiling. That's the difference between Americans and British, and that is why, let me tell you, why they can do comedy roasts and they work and we can't, because they're punctuating the false veneer of smiling that we don't have. We're punctuating nothing. We go around <laughs> saying, all right, you're fat. So, so comedy roasts don't work. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> We're already doing that every minute of the day with each other. Yeah, that's really interesting because for them that's like a release. It's a release. It? Yeah, but we don't know, need that release. We don't need now. release because we spend our lives saying things like, Blimey, that bra doesn't fit, does it? <laughs> and you say, How dare you? <laughs> no, I'm talking so about the personal. one that I wear. <laughs> Do you get nervous when you're doing stand up still? Or did you ever get nervous? Because I know you've yeah, said yeah. something about this, haven't you? That you think if someone gets like unbelievably nervous, yeah. maybe it's not the job for them. Well, there, there is a thing about. There's an old thing about stand-up that says that if you're not nervous, you should be nervous. Yeah. It shows that you're a good performer. I believe that is a thing that has been invented by comedians to make themselves feel better about being <laughs> nervous. It's, there's three ways of being. Absolute confidence, completely sure of yourself. That is the best way to be. Second best way to be is nervous, so at least you've got some energy in you and, you, and it matters to yeah. you. And the third way is absolute apathy. And what happens is I've, I've gone on stage with apathy and it's always been a disaster. Really? I've gone on with nerves and it's been okay, and I've gone on with absolute confidence and it's been the best. It's not the best way to be, but it's definitely better than being apathetic. Being yeah, nervous. yeah, but yeah, yeah. I've never been the type that's been thrown up in the toilet beforehand. But there are comics like that, aren't oh, there? Oh, I just don't know. Why? Why do you? You must really love being on stage, right? To the well, point where you'd vomit key, before you go on. The reward like is so it. great. Yeah, I like being on stage, but I don't love it that much where I'd vomit beforehand. I just... The problem with stand-up is that you really can, particularly in the last few years, because of how big it's grown, is how, how important you think you are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard not to think that anyway. If you've spent years, the most thing that all comedians have in common is that they're terrified of getting up in the first place. The very first time they do stand-up, almost all of them are terrified. They all think they're gonna fail, and to be fair, most do. So the ones that survive and don't and carry on doing it, yeah. think, I must be special then. Almost Christ-like. <laughs> Maybe I've been put on this earth to give a message. Maybe I better ch better try and change the world because this. Is and he goes, "Can I just say you're just like Ken Dodd? It's <laughs> all you're doing for a living. You're getting up, you're lighting in the low for an hour and a half of their day-to-day -day jobs, and you're going. That's it. 
<laughs> stop thinking that you're here to change the world because I'm not saying don't get me wrong. I, mean, I think it's, if you do do that, I say, if you're doing it for the right reasons, it's very worthwhile. If you're trying to do a charity gig for the Bristol Slapstick Festival, then I think you are Christ-like, a bit like I'm doing tonight. <laughs> there, there, are, there are a certain... Yeah, there's a breed, isn't there? There's a breed that genuinely believe that they have been put on the earth to change things, <laughs> uh, perhaps in a way that they're um, <laughs> not capable of doing. You know, I wanted to ask you, Lou, have you had th you've had therapy, haven't you? Because you had therapy well, no, for the I book. Have to be, I have to be honest and say, I only had therapy for the book. So what I did was I wrote my, my autobiography mm. and it was pointed out to me that it's not the most personal book because as you've pointed out, I don't really do the displays of emotion very well. So the book was quite a lot about how you're getting involved in comedy. You know, there's like 47 consecutive pages about how I structure sitcoms. So it's the person says, yeah, you might want to write a bit more about your mum. <laughs> so I thought, well, the best way to do this is to go to a therapist. She reads the, the chapter and after yeah. every chapter she interviews me and she can talk about that chapter and then I'll write it out like a, like a sketch. Yes, yeah, so it was a transcript. Transcript. Had, yeah. it, it was the genuine conversations we had. Was it? It was. Obviously, I'd edited it for comedic purposes and also added my thoughts. So a lot of it is my thoughts how I felt at the time or afterwards listening back to the to the I thought it worked really well it really made me laugh and oh, also good. as like someone it. who's had a lot of therapy I liked it as well because and has ADHD <laughs> I liked it because your mind was racing in a way that actually does happen when you're talking to someone because you yeah. do feel slightly on edge when you're in a therapy situation especially if you're new to it I think but did you how did you I know you were doing it It wasn't what she said to me she said look I, I have to tell you now this is not how you do therapy by mm. reading someone's book yeah. and then interviewing them whilst it's been recorded for what is a, <laughs> comedic purposes <laughs> but she did point out some things that perhaps I hadn't thought about like perhaps I've got ADHD Yeah um perhaps what else? I, perhaps I should turn up for these sessions with clothes on you know they're not the usual things <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't uh sitting there crying and masturbating at the same time there's all sorts of little things i hadn't considered before. perhaps you shouldn't use humor all the time to deflect that's right she did say that but i didn't <laughs> did, did really go in that bit well you know russell howard said he had a bit of therapy and that's basically what she said is he walked in and she made some reference to guantanamo and he immediately said something about oh orange isn't my color and yeah. she said well why do you feel the need to make jokes yeah. all the time and that's quite weird, I suppose, for you, because that's your thing, isn't it? And I think with the right therapist, you can still make jokes. Well, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, like Freud says there's no such thing as a joke and that everything represents something else. And I suppose that, that is true. But, you know, you shouldn't always use comedy to deflect. You wouldn't say that to a singer, would you? You go, uh, I, my, my mother died, so I sang this fantastic ballad about her. A therapist wouldn't say, well, you wasted your time there, didn't you? You're deflecting with a song. You know I mean, you go, well, yes, I turned my pain into an art form of a song. Well... We, I've done the same with the joke. <laughs> Why is one worthy and the other's called deflection? Hello. Don't say hello to the dog. I made a really good point. <laughs> no. <laughs> Woman in background laughs with dog. Do you know what, Lee? I'm going to give you that point. That's the point. I have, I've never no, thought no. of it like that. But this. But I think in, you're do you know right. what it's about? It's about the art form of comedy is always and has always been, even despite yeah. the fact that it's never been bigger than it is at the moment. Low rent. The more you go for laughs, the more low rent you are. Even in our world of comedy, yeah. the ones that go for the laughs are seen as lower rent. Yeah. You've got to be going for something else now because it's seen as, like we just said, deflection. There's a fire in the distance. Look. There's a, do you think it's my car? Oh, my gosh. What's that? happened? That's a proper fire. I hope it's a bonfire, an intentional fire. Well, oh, it is, is it November the 5th yet? Oh, yeah, we're getting there. That's right, Lee. Well, Lee, we're going back to the coffee shop. 
Have you enjoyed our walk? I really have, and I've enjoyed Livy's company. Oh, I've... thanks. <laughs> well, I've got to go. It's 12.52. I'm late. Come on. No, I have really enjoyed. I've enjoyed your company. I've enjoyed the dogs. I would, for someone that is auditioning dogs, one's to type, you know, for my family, she would pass the test. She's a lovely dog. She's placid. She's only done one defecation, and let's be honest, <laughs> I didn't have to pick it up. Someone else dealt with that. And would you go something like Dogs Trust, do you think? Like a rescue dog? Oh, definitely, yeah. Because I always see it as like they're in prison. And I always think of them as the nice prisoners like Ronnie Barker in Porridge. You know, I want a dog that's done the equivalent of fraud or something genteel, though. I don't want a dog that's well, in for GBH. Can I go this way so I can go straight to my car of so course. you can see my flash car on the way? Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you, And if we'd have had the chance to do a bit longer, I could have told you about my feelings. But I've just... Um, just... Get in the car! I really hope you enjoyed that. Here's today's doggy thought. Train your dog so they learn never to try and steal your lunch. They'll just make you feel so guilty you can't enjoy it. Oh, and I just wanted to say a big thanks to the Dog Trust for loaning us Livy for the day, who was lovely. If you want to find out more info about them, go to dogstrust.org.uk and please remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes if you liked it. Because I like to read the reviews to my dog Ray every night. I mean, I'm not putting pressure on you. But if they aren't glowing, he has nightmares. Just FYI. <laughs>